So I don't think I'm going to do the first time spiel tonight. Uh, although it is a little different tonight. Normally we cover one book per week at this. Once we hit the pastoral epistles, we move to one book a week. And tonight we're covering three books. So I hope you read ahead and memorized those so that this goes more smoothly. So we're going to be in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Let's pray and we'll get to it. Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, I'm thankful for these three books that we're engaging tonight. And I'm thankful for the emphasis that is on truth and love. Uh, as we study them, I pray that we would grow in both of those and grow in our understanding of what it means to walk in those, to live in those, to stand firmly in those. Uh, we humble ourselves before you and uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I did want to say before we got started that um, I'm going to be sending out an email to the body probably tonight, maybe tomorrow morning. Um, we have officially put a offer in on the land behind us, and so um, it's kind of, we had 14 years of no response. We asked the body to pray about it, and within two weeks we have like two possible inroads, and within two weeks after that we have what looks to be a really legitimate um, thing. And so we've put an offer in, and um, all the finance people are, are good with it. Um, there's a big, there's a leadership team that's been working on it, and um, we want y'all to be praying that that they accept the offer. That's for a, <laughs> like, I don't want to over spiritualize it and say if the Lord wills it. I, I think He's opened the doors. I don't think we have to pray in such broad terms. Uh, I do think he says, let your requests be made known. And our request is that we would get that land for the offer that we put in on it. So um, just pray that that goes smoothly. I've learned that uh, land deals can go south quick just because, you know, if someone's been holding on to something for a long time and doesn't like the way something smells, uh, they can say, ah, never mind. And it's another 14 years before you hear anything. So y'all pray about that. We trust the Lord with it. Uh, it's a, It's an offer that was made in faith, but it also wasn't one of the you know cheapskate. We believe that to be God's land, so give it to us at you know hundred dollars an acre. We didn't we didn't do that. We went in with a significant offer. So uh, y'all be praying about that, and we'll keep y'all updated as we uh, as we go. So we're in first, second, and third John tonight. Uh, we have covered in the course of our studies the faith, grace, humility, new life, the second coming, hope, leadership, success, beginnings, forgiveness, sticking with the best, not having a backup plan. Uh, the practicalities of a faith that works, uh, when things get tough, uh, certainty. And these three books together um, really focus on truth and love, truth and love. So I want to open with a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt that you had to choose between being truthful with someone or loving with someone? Because being both didn't seem to reconcile. Situation where you had to choose, should I be truthful here or loving? Because you didn't see truthful and loving as being the same thing. Some of you are sitting next to your spouse and don't want to answer what's in your head. And that's understandable. So, Just, just yes. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Anyone have any examples of that where you felt like you had to choose between being truthful and being uh, loving? We don't have to go real deep on this question. I mean, there, there should be a, a number of surface level humorous examples. Do you like uh, yeah, do you like my haircut? Do you like this shirt? Do you, yeah. Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah. Just, 
I'm going to answer your question with a question. Yeah. I have one. Yeah. <laughs> so he's not going to be surprised if someone asks him about <laughs> the fact that you hated it, yeah, or loved it but hated it, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. The irony. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I was like, I, I literally just opened a box for like a week. Like, I didn't like oh. pull the watch out of the box. Because I didn't have time to figure out how it worked. Yeah. So, about, I don't know, three weeks later after we got back from spring break, and I was we were like gun ho, what are we doing now? What are we, you know, watch these. I get the app, you know, and I get it all loaded up, and I'm like, this is awesome. I'm showing him all this, and he goes, well, I'm glad you actually like the gift. <laughs> Loving. loving, yeah, but maybe not truthful, yeah, yeah. That's good. Sure. Truthful without being loving. <laughs> Brad, do you need to excuse yourself for a minute? That's great. What did you just say? <laughs> it's good to be honest sometimes. I, I think that's the rub when it comes with truth and love is it feels like, man, I really appreciate honesty most of the time. Like it seems like it's good to get truth most of the time, but then there's other times where maybe it feels like, um, can, can you just show me some love without being so honest? And, and so my question is, why does truth sometimes feel unloving? Because it's not what you want to hear. Truth sometimes feels unloving because it's not always what you want to hear. And so we equate this loving thing with what I prefer, what I want to hear, uh, what the response I was looking for, whatever it might be. And so it's really interesting. These three books work... Uh, these three short letters say a ton about love 
and truth. In John's first letter here, and we're going to go through all three of them tonight, so we're going to be moving pretty quick. In his first letter, he's writing to answer questions about what it means to be a real, a real Christian and how you know you've really gotten a hold of the truth. So look at 1, 5 through 7. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him no darkness, and in, in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And that in 5.1 it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So according to those three sections, what do we learn about Truth and love. What are some things that stick out to you in those three sections? How do we know we're walking in the truth? Okay. When we love the children of God, when we love God, when we obey God's commands, and what is the particular truth that's repeated throughout those three sections? Yep. Yeah. God knows your heart, and if your words are matching, what else? What is the particular truth that's non-negotiable? That we believe that Jesus Christ is what? The Son of God. 
That is a very, very important point. So immediately, John puts our profession of having fellowship with God to the test. I mean, that's how he comes out of the gates with these, le- these three letters that he's writing to these uh, to churches and, and individuals within those churches. Immediately, John puts this profession of having fellowship with God to the test. Are we really walking in the light? It seems fitting to John to challenge the hearers who are in a precarious situation because of some of what was going on in the church, to challenge them to know for sure, to be more certain that they are in Christ, that they are having fellowship with God. So specifically, John provides three tests in this first letter to see whether or not we have gotten a hold of the real thing, the real truth. And the the first is what's called the doctrinal test. So number one, if you're taking notes in this first letter of these three tests, the first is the doctrinal test. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? This was a major question to be answered, especially in the early church, because of confusion over who was Jesus. Was he was he fifty percent man and fifty percent God? Many of the early church um, controversies existed over was Jesus you know half man, half God, one hundred percent man, one hundred percent God? Did he abandon his godness to become man while he was man? Was he not? divine but if he was divine was he man and if if he was divine was he really tempted the way that we were was he really flesh and there was a lot of questions about that and because of that um, there were teachers in the church that were saying false things so many believe that these letters are being written to the churches in Ephesus and in those churches there appears to have been false teaching stating that God never really took on human flesh human flesh that that was what was going on in the churches that he was writing these letters to. Teachers saying God never really took on human flesh. Dever says um, they said that human flesh was sinful, that human flesh was evil, and that human flesh was God. So how was was bad. So how could God take on something that was evil and sinful and bad? So God may have appeared as human in Jesus but he did not really take on flesh. That was the the heart of the false teaching, at least a section of the false teaching. He only appeared fleshly. He only appeared as a human, but he wasn't human because human flesh is evil, it's bad, it's broken, and it needs to be redeemed. So he couldn't have done that. So Paul warned way back in Acts 20, 29 through 30. um, Does anyone remember what he said would happen after he left? He's establishing the church in its earliest days, and he says, after I leave, something's going to happen. Do you all remember what it was in Acts 20, 29 through 30? The the Holy Spirit would come. That was a little earlier. So that has happened. They've gone through that, but now he's saying something um, will rise up against the church. Yeah. He said they will come in like wolves in Acts 20, 29. So it's interesting because in Acts 20, 28... He gives this encouragement to those leading the church, pay careful attention to every member of the flock whom Christ purchased with his own blood. Careful attention to every member. And he goes on to say in 29 that wolves will come in. After he leaves, savage wolves will come in distorting the truth and drawing disciples after them. So, He's establishing the church in truth, helping people to know truth, to stand firm in truth. Like what we heard on Sunday, there are people who proclaim the truth so that we can stand firm in the truth and walk in the truth and build each other up in the truth. Truth is very important. The false teachers come in and say, 
Well, what's really true is this, and they twist it. And he's saying those people who do that will be savage wolves. What we're seeing in this letter is the fulfillment of that warning. This is the fulfillment. The savage wolves are there. The false teachers had come teaching that Christ was not fully human. The problem is this. Without a fully human and fully divine mediator, we cannot have the atoning sacrifice for sins that we need. Why? Without a fully human and fully divine Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, without a fully human, fully divine Jesus, we cannot have the atoning sacrifice for sins that we need. Why? Okay, if he wasn't really man, he couldn't die. Okay. Exactly. If he wasn't perfect, it wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice that was required. He couldn't, he couldn't meet that requirement of perfection. Why else? Whoever it was had to be under the law. Why else? Man, this is good. These are really good answers. I'm loving this. Why else would it not be sufficient? sympathetic high priest he wouldn't really be sympathetic if he didn't really know what we have experienced in our temptation to sin he wouldn't know our weaknesses he wouldn't have the utter patience with our weaknesses and be gentle and meek towards us if he didn't understand what we dealt with in the flesh why else why else would it be incomplete Yes, his sinlessness couldn't have come only from his divinity or else it wouldn't really be as sufficient as the what would be required of humankind and a perfect sacrifice. What about God's wrath? Yeah, there has to be the shedding of blood, real blood, as well as the fulfillment of all the prophecies. I mean, there are so many prophecies. Not a bone broken, a, a sheep in, its, um, in a particular year, and, or a lamb in its particular year, a side, the side pierced, gambling over the garments. I mean, those are all things that happened to a, a human who was also completely God. So we're going to come back to that, but man, those were good answers. I'm, I'm digging that. That was really good. Um, so without a fully human and fully divine mediator, we cannot have the atoning sacrifices for sins that we need. And this was a problem because in this church, obviously people were saying God, God would never take on human flesh. It only looked like it. That was the main thing that was going on here. So look at 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. They're talking about Jesus. We saw him. We touched him. We have experienced his presence. He indeed took on flesh. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship 
is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is his Son completely. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Why do you think they said that last thing? It's kind of a weird... Like, what if I wrote you some stuff and said, I am writing you this so that I would have joy. I'm writing you all this stuff so that I'd be happy. Why, why do you think that that's thrown in there? Yeah, no, I mean, what is more wonderful than seeing someone who was lost become found? Than seeing someone who was against God become for God? Than seeing someone who was not forgiven become forgiven? That's why baptisms aren't like a somber, sad occasion. It's a celebration. It's why dads get emotional when they're baptizing their kids. It's why people want to take pictures because there's this picture of new life and there's this picture here saying, you have got to know Jesus is real. He's really the Son of God, and He really took on flesh, and He really dwelt among us. And we saw Him. We were there. We heard Him. We touched Him. We saw Him. And we want you to know that you can have the same kind of union with Him that we had because of how real He is. He's making this emphatic. He's stating this emphatically. He does it there. He does it in 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out in the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You heard about this back in Acts 20, 29. And now is in the world already. Little children... No, we'll wait on the little children part. We'll come back. And down in 14 it says, or over in 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. John is writing to these young Christians, these new Christians, to give them confidence. He wants them to have confidence. It's hard to believe something confidently when different teachers are teaching opposite things on matters as fundamental as who Jesus is, right? I mean, can you imagine them showing up for some form of a corporate gathering, which would usually have happened in someone's home, and hearing from one person that Jesus is the Son of God who took on flesh and, and paid for our sins and died a real death and then conquered death and was resurrected, and then someone at another gathering stands up to teach and says, God would never take on flesh. Flesh is evil. Jesus didn't really take on flesh. He only looked like it. That would be so... Imagine, just imagine for a moment. It'd be confusing to us, right? If we were in that situation, it'd be confusing to us. Imagine if we went over to the classrooms and did that. And then you ask your children, um, so what did you learn tonight? And one saying, Jesus, 
Jesus was the son, but didn't really, he wasn't really human, but I mean, you would get confusing answers. That's what was happening in this church because there were teachers that were stating opposite things. Gnosticism was rampant in the Ephesian church, and in these letters we see it over and over again. Because that's where you go. You get to a point where if, if he didn't take on flesh, then what, you happen, what happens to you in the flesh doesn't really matter. So yeah, you're exactly right. Because it ends up saying flesh and spirit are separate. Um, how you live doesn't really matter. That's another form of the false teacher that always goes hand in hand with saying Jesus didn't really take on flesh. Because then your flesh doesn't matter as much. Um. He wants them to have confidence. Um, it's just a reminder here that we sometimes we sometimes we view God. Sometimes I do. I don't know. I don't want to speak for everybody, but sometimes we can have a view of God as if he he do, he doesn't really want to be known. Like he just wants to be mysterious, like the guy behind the curtain. And this is a good reminder that that's not the case. God wants to be known, and we should want to make truth really plain. We shouldn't want to speak in terms as if we have a mystery that we know, and if you're smart enough or wise enough, you may be able to catch on eventually. Now, we want to make the truth really plain, and here he wanted to make the truth as plain as possible, and you've heard how many times he repeats himself saying the same thing about Jesus being the flesh because that would give them confidence, and they would be encouraged because remember what we learned in 2 Peter, those who are weak are more vulnerable. Remember that? We go back to those letters. Those who are weak are more vulnerable. John knows that as well. If you're weak and you're not sure what you believe, you're going to be far more vulnerable to the enemy and those who are coming in being the Antichrist in the church. Notice this isn't just somewhere out there in the nasty community of pagans. These are people, that they were crafty. They knew that it wasn't as effective to do it out there, so they came into the church to do it. Look at 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And 5.5 5 says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John um, might say that while unbelief is a problem, it almost seems like wrong belief is just as great of a danger in his view. Like unbelief is a huge problem. People who don't know Jesus need to hear about Jesus. But in his approach as he's writing this early church as an elder, as a pastor, as a leader of the church, his concern is with wrong belief and wrong teaching. Just the same with Peter. You've got to stand firm in the truth. And it's interesting what we'll find here in these letters about truth and love, about what they say about how we treat those who walk in things that aren't true or who state things that aren't true. But um, he had a significant concern over the great danger of wrong belief. So that brings us back to why it's so important to believe Jesus was in the flesh and was fully divine as well. Dever says, and y'all got to, to pretty much all of it, if you take away Jesus' physical body, there's no sacrifice. If you take away the fact that Jesus was God incarnate, his sacrifice loses its infinite worth and its ability to exhaust God's infinite wrath. So y'all were right on the money on why you can't have that view and how that view skews the way we see sacrifice and atonement and need for forgiveness. So the first thing was a doctrinal test on do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? The second thing is a moral test. Here we see a moral test. 
Do you obey the commands of God? He said, if you want to know if you got a handle on truth, if you're going down the right path, if things are going right, doctrinal test, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Because you can't waver on that. Number two, do you obey the commands of God? Look at 2, 3 through 6. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. I mean, I don't have to say a lot as a teacher to expound upon what that means. By this, we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which we walked. Look at 15 through 17 in the same chapter. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then in 3.5, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there's no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Has anyone ever read that verse and freaked out a little bit? Like if you just take it totally out of context, like imagine if, if my child lied. This is a good example of being careful with your context. If my child lied to me, and I knew they lied, and they knew that I knew that they lied, I said, I, I just want to tell you a little something, uh, Henry, because he's kind of a liar right now. So, uh, No one who abides in him, in Jesus, in God, keeps on sinning. Uh, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Uh, more than that, son, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. There you go. And so in that moment, someone struggling with sin might think, I'm of the devil. I'm not, I've never seen or known or heard God because I sinned. This is a letter to give encouragement and, um, and to build up those and to bring some confidence to those who are in the Lord. If you couple that with what is also said in this letter, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So how do you reconcile... What do y'all think? How do you reconcile those two things? If we say we have no sin, we're liars. If you sin, if you keep on sinning, um, you're of the devil. How do you reconcile those two verses? Yeah. If we believe in Jesus, we wear his righteous robes. Yes. How do you reconcile... He who says he has no sin is a liar, and he who keeps on sinning is of the devil. How do you reconcile that? 
Because what happens if you say you have no sin? You're a liar. And the devil's a liar. And your father lies. That's your dad. So, but then if you say, oh, I don't want to be a liar. I'm a sinner. Okay, well, he who keeps on sinning is of the devil. Unrepentant sin? Great point. So, do y'all do we all struggle with sin? Show, show hands. Huh. I better not be the only one. Bunch of liars. Um, yeah, th- this is um, clearly, clearly, clearly talking about your pattern of life. He is looking at the pattern of life. He's looking at what is what is indicative of how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you think your thoughts, what you do with your eyes, what you do with your words. It is a pattern of life here because you can't say everyone, uh, well, verse 4 makes a practice of sinning. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is practicing lawlessness. So if you keep on sinning, he's not saying if you keep on struggling with sin, you must not really be saved. He's saying if you keep on making a pattern and a practice of sinning, doing the same things over and over, maybe you need to consider that if you don't care about that and you're moving in an unrepentant manner, and you're not really um, repenting, you need to consider that the, the basic facts of Jesus are not something you have really adopted. Because again, Gnosticism was a problem in the church. People who would make a practice of sinning and say, it doesn't matter because my flesh is separate from my spirit and I'm forgiven and it doesn't really matter because that's not really who I am, that's just my flesh. And things get really weird doctrinally when you start trying to slice it that way. So here we see those, those uh, uh, verses... Do you obey the commands of God? In short, the difference between obedience and disobedience is the difference between the love of God and the love of the world. I'm going to say that again. The difference between obedience and disobedience is the difference between the love of God and love of the world. Your life will display one general pattern or another. Your life will display one general pattern or another. Your life will display a general pattern of loving God and thereby obeying His commands, or your life will display a pattern of loving the world and making a practice of sinning. I guess the obvious question would be, well, what if it looks like both? I mean, if you're sitting there thinking, right now, if you're sitting there thinking, man, I, I, I love God, but there's a lot of my life that looks like I love the world. You should be concerned about those areas. Like, those are the areas where you are taking your thoughts captive. Those are the areas where you are trying to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Those are the areas where you are trying to um, move in holiness and be more Christ-like and trust God with those things. And so um, if, if you're sitting here saying, well, if, if, it, if there's inevitably a general pattern of loving God or a general pattern of loving the world, I, I feel like there's just a lot of both in my life. There shouldn't be a lot of both in your life. There should be a general pattern of loving God if you are in Christ. And as far as love of the world goes, 
You can help to put that to death. But some one of the things you heard on Sunday morning and that you hear all the time here is you can't do that alone. You do that in church. You do that with other people. You do that in this congregation that is gifted in unique and wonderful ways to help one another move forward and become more Christ-like. So there will be one general pattern displayed. There will be one general pattern displayed. And it is indicative of where your heart is. And if you're worried that you have two general patterns, you need to consider the worldliness. You need to consider a true confession of sin and a true movement in repentance. It will tend in one direction or the other. John Newton. Anyone know who John Newton is? Olivia Newton-John. Olivia Newton-John, who is... uh, uh, ancestor John Newton um, that's fact I hope it's recorded um, uh, John Newton uh, who was not in Greece or anything else um, said uh, he's actually the one who wrote Amazing Grace he's the, the author of Amazing Grace um, maybe not as catchy as some of the other songs that Olivia Newton-John was in um, but popular nonetheless and uh, he was a slave trader um, before he wrote Amazing Grace. Like he like traded slaves. He traded humans as, as like cargo and product f- for profit. He was a slave trader. And um, I was reading this week on a thing that he said with, um, in, a, in a family devotional time, a prayer time with his family that was recorded. And you're thinking about this moral test, do I obey the commands of God? What is this pattern of life that is set? Is it a pattern of world or a pattern of God? And sometimes that, I mean, there's nothing like First John to just kind of make you like take a real deep breath and say, where am I? Am I sinning deliberately? Are there patterns that are bad and that I need to turn from because it's not in keeping with who I am in Christ? He said this, I'm not who I ought to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be, yet I can truly say I am not what I want, once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He had a view that was fitting for this sort of setting in, first, in this first letter from John. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be, yet I can truly say I'm not what I was. There's this picture that um, Dever talked about, this kind of pattern of when things don't go right, when there's a problem... Um, maybe you find yourself in a situation that's particularly challenging of being really focused on the present and, the f- and eternity. Like, don't get too focused on the immediate past and don't get too focused on the immediate future because we don't have control. You can't change anything here. We don't have a ton of control here. But if, if you're really present and then you have an eternal perspective, um, that will keep you moving properly. And I think that's something that John Newton had as he said, you know, I, I know I'm not what I once was and by the grace of God, this, this is who I am. And um, that gives you a different view of when you sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the guy who wrote it, a guy who was a slave trader and a guy who, who struggled with um, what he was and um, what God's grace, uh, the effect that it had. So the first test is the doctrinal test. The second test is the moral test. And then the third test, as you might have guessed it, is the love test. Do you love the people of God? Do you love the people of of God in 421 it says and this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother pretty straightforward 
Interestingly, John is not commanding his readers to love the people of God. I want to be careful about this. Because here, this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John's not commanding his readers to love the people of God. He's simply saying anyone who has gotten a hold of the real truth will love the people of God. What's the difference? What do y'all think the difference is? Anyone who's gotten a hold of truth, anyone who's really gotten a hold of Jesus, will love the people of God. He's not saying, you have to love the people of God. What's the difference between the two? Yeah. Love. Well done. Bringing Paul Tripp back into it again this week. I like that. You need to work on your mustache, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, fruit. The fruit of knowing God is that you, you love God's people. Sure. Mm-hmm. A natural overflow of salvation, yeah. Yeah, it's in, you know, and our Ben and I have talked about this a lot, that, you know, we knocked on every door this side of 30 in the first few years of being here, and the predominant statement was that we're totally good, we're square with God, we've got the truth, we've got salvation, and there's just not, not much use for the church. And a lot of people kind of like had a view of, I don't really want the church to screw up this thing I got going with God, because... Now, there's a bunch of sinners there. And so, um, you know, this reality here, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You can't say, I have no need to show any love or be available to other believers because I'm square with God. That would, sh- that would show that you, in fact, don't have the truth. If you have no desire for fellowship and love with brothers and sisters in Christ and proclaim to be one of those brothers and sisters of Christ, you're simply proving that you're not. And it's not fitting to just command, you love, you better love the church. You better love me, you better love them. Get in there, show some love. That's, no, it's, 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 it's you're, it, this is indicative. Anyone who's gotten a hold of the real thing will love the people of God. You, the, the, the elder John here doesn't, doesn't have to try to make that command. He's simply stating this is how it is. In 2, 9 through 11, we see... Uh, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then over in 3.14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Dever has a statement. He says, the most honest test of Christian love is whether you love those with whom you have disagreed and had difficulty. Because that's when church people usually split, when you disagree and have difficulty, right? And he says, the, t- the test, the almost honest test of Christian love is whether we really love those with whom we've disagreed or with whom we've had difficulty or with whom we've had trouble or with whom we've had hard conversations. In 521, it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why in the world do you think that he ended this particular letter with that little statement? If you've ever like read this in like your Bible reading and you're like, okay, you got all this testimony concerning some little children, keep yourself from idols. It's like, like record scratch. Like that was a weird ending. There was no, you know, peace be with you. Greet everyone. It's just keep yourself from idols. Why do you think he ends with that? Yeah. Keep you from the idol will keep you from loving God and loving others. Why else do you think he ends with that? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the, he he. You don't say that unless you like. We're we're leaving here, and I'm like, hey hey, don't commit idolatry. And I keep walking. You'd probably think, what does he, what does he think I'm about to go do? What is he worried about? There's got to be some idol that he has in his mind that maybe he thinks I'm struggling with. That's exactly why he says, little, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It would be natural for that to be the exact thing that they do as the children saying, uh, what idol? And what idol do you think he's talking about? Yeah. 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 Ultimately, false teachers are trying to get you to follow their idol. Yeah, there's known, active, blatant idolatry. And then there are false teachers that are coming in and trying to present a false and distorted view of Jesus. And what he's getting at here, along with all these other idols, is that a false and distorted view of Jesus is an idol. A false and distorted view of Jesus is an idol. I remember there were some things that I read in Scripture, particularly related to, uh, I'll just say it, we can, you know, i only got a few minutes left anyway. Um, what, related to like... Um, uh, God's choosing of some people and election and predestination and all that. And, um, you know, you can present those things in a way that is unnecessarily harsh, unnecessarily um, cutting, unnecessarily divisive. Um, There are people who have presented those things in a way that is um, without love. The way you say things matters. And and we we can talk about those things in a way that is 
flippant about those who are lost and flippant about those who are steeped in their sin. And I remember the first time I read a vert, it was Romans 9, that talked about um, you know, the Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And I actually, I read that and I assumed that my translation was messed up. And, and I said, not my God. That's ridiculous. Not my God. Not who I grew up knowing. Not my God. And what I meant was not my version of God, which what I meant was not my idol. If you have a version of God and a view of God that's different from Scripture, that's an idol. And that was what John was so passionate and concerned about clarifying. Um, we can have different beliefs in the same faith. I'm not saying that if you don't see eye to eye on anyone who talks about predestination and election that you're probably going to hell because you're of the devil and your, your God's really just an idol in a form of your figment imagination or whatever. But, um, but we have to be careful with that because a false and distorted view of Jesus is an idol. Um, second John, so these next, second John has 13 verses and third John has 15 verses. So that gives us about one verse per 15 seconds that we have left in this study. And I think we have plenty of time to get through it. Um, Second John continues with the theme of love and truth. It's, it's a theme that continues. And the, the two points that are made in here is that real Christianity involves love and real Christianity involves truth. There's some repetition here, but it's, it's a lot shorter. In verses 5 through 6, it says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, you could totally take that out of context and be like, ooh, John's got a girlfriend, and he's saying, girl, we need to love one another, just the way we were told from the beginning. And it, the lady is the church. It, he's, he's using, he's using uh, 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 metaphor here. Uh, the lady is the church, and her children are its people, the, the people of God. So um, I'm, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. God commands love. God commands love. He's not commanding love. He's urging you to do what God commands as a good leader. Here in verse 5, we see that the elder author personifies love. There's no command. He asks. He, he, he says, this is what you should do. I'm giving you counsel. You need to do this. Why? Because God commandments, commands it. Not because not Elder John commands it, but because God commands it. Dever has a note right here. He says, we should speak softly. Overspeaking will turn up the temperature and turn down the reasonability and the love. Do you believe this? Have you ever witnessed this? Where you get a different approach when you approach something meekly and softly and patiently as opposed to when you, preach it, when you approach it with over-speaking and turning up the temperature? Maybe with your kids, maybe with your spouse, maybe when you're trying to talk to someone about something that y'all disagree on or have a conflict on. Why is that hard? Yeah, because I'm right. <laughs> That's usually... When we get more emphatic and loud is when someone doesn't believe that I'm right and I really think that I'm right. That's usually how that goes. I watch my kids do it. I know I do it. Um, here, I, I like Dever's point here that we should speak softly because over speaking 
We'll turn up the temperature and turn down the reasonability and the love. Verse 6, um, we just read, in this love that we walk, this is love that we walk according to his commandment. Um, obedience characterizes love. Obedience characterizes love. So real Christianity involves love, and real Christianity involves truth. Obviously, the point that we're getting to is you don't have to choose between truth and love. When it comes to faith, when it comes to salvation, truth and love go hand in hand. You may have to tell someone something that they don't want to hear, but if it is truth, that is the loving thing to do. Like, that sounds like real elementary, but our culture thinks that's a load of garbage. Do you realize that? Like, sometimes you got to tell people things they don't want to hear, but if it's true, it's loving to tell them that. Our culture, what are some examples of how our culture is so far from that reality that we just experienced from the word? What are some examples? Gender identity. God is love. Love is love. The President of the United States said that in front of the whole nation. Love is love. No one believes that. If you sit there and think you believe it, you don't. We can talk later. No one believes love is love. Everyone's got a, everyone's got a boundary. It's just a matter of where you write the boundary. <laughs> yeah, that way she knows. Yeah. 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 I don't know when to believe him or not. Yeah. Yeah, and that's on you. That backfires quick. <laughs> yeah, self self preservation there, right? No, if if. If you only surround yourself with people who affirm you, you're, you're likely far more about your own kingdom than you are the kingdom of God. That's, that's just a reality. It does sound like Facebook. You can't, you can only like. There's no button for that. It's stupid. I'd be hitting the stupid button all day. I'd lose all my friends. Do what? That is capital stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it involves truth. False teachers oppose truth. I mean, these false teachers that, that we're addressing in these letters are, are teachers who oppose the truth. Um, Christians must know the truth. Uh, Dever notes that the people who best understand who Christ is and what he has done will be the people who are the most gentle and the people who are the most meek because they best know the love of God. We love only as well as we understand the gospel. It's interesting, in verse 10 and 11, it says, um, If anyone comes to you and does not bring you this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's interesting that in the, this ocean of love and truth, when we see untruth, when we see twisted truth, when we see lies cloaked in truth, the response is not to, uh, not to continue with the hospitality, but to be inhospitable towards those who are liars, to be inhospitable towards untruth. Don't embrace that. Don't greet that. Don't bring that into your house. When he talks about bringing it into the house, he's talking about bringing it into the church. That's what the church was at the time, was their house. Don't let that in. 
Third John continues and essentially says what First John and Second John have said, but they do it with two examples of these two people, and it's Gaius and Diotrephes. Diotrephes. Gaius is seen here as accepting trouble for the sake of the gospel, taking trouble for the gospel, and then Diotrephes is making trouble for the gospel. I'll just show real quick. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may well go with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. That's a unique consideration. Like, I hope you are as well, spirit- I hope you are as well physically as you are spiritually. Do we have that view? That we're spiritually setting the pace for how we are physically? Or, or, or do we obsess with physical stuff? For I rejoiced greatly... When the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth." Dever notes that insofar as we agree on the truth that God's priority will have unity. In this setting, showing hospitality is what allowed people to come from far away to either teach or hear the gospel. That was one of the benefits of hospitality. The large um, percentage of hospitality that has been talked about in all these um, pastoral epistles is hospitality to your, to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are strangers to you. There are unbelieving strangers that we are also to be hospitable to, but the large percentage of what's spoken of is you have to be hospitable to people you don't know who proclaim Christ because hospitality is the way that people could come from far away to either hear the gospel or to teach the gospel. And there's a question that was posed in my studies. It's just I thought it was a good convicting question for reflection as we're closing this study up. Is there anyone you love purely for the sake of the gospel? just for the sake of the gospel, because generosity and love make truth visible. On the flip side of Gaius is this guy named Diotrephes. We don't know much about him, but what we do know is this. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to put them, stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So this Diotrephes is the kind of guy who's not going to forward the letter from John and who's going to put guys like Gaius out of the church because this is not worthwhile entertaining these strangers who are coming from afar to hear and to teach the gospel. So this guy is overstepping any boundary that may have been um, far behind him. He speaks and lives selfishly. 11 says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. After explaining what John plans to do about this as a church leader, he says, when, I'm, when I get there, I'm going to talk to everyone about it. Everyone needs to know what Diotrephes is doing. And, he, and then he closes with words that are fitting for our conclusion tonight in 11 through 15. Um, do not imitate uh, evil, but imitate good. And then down in 13, I had much to write you but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. Um, The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. We had an email that was circulated among the deacons 
this week about how face-to-face encounters are 34 times more effective than text or email. Face to, that's a study by people who do studies. Um, that, that face-to-face is 34 times more effective than emails and getting things done, getting things accomplished, and communicating what needs to be communicated. And um, it was actually Aaron who pointed that out and said, hey, that sounds a lot like I had much to write, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon um, and be face-to-face and talk through that. Um, It's an encouragement that as we're talking about truth and love, the best way to stand firmly in the truth and to show love is to do it face-to-face. Whether you're talking to a lost person, whether you're talking to a saved person, we need to have more time where we are engaging one another uh, face-to-face in truth and in love. Let's pray. Lord, you are very good to us. I pray that we would walk in the truth we've heard. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We did go a little over, so you might 